Hey, welcome to Simply Faithful, your place for conversations about Christianity without the hype. Yeah, we love having conversations about faith, life, and ministry with one another. We're so thankful that you have tuned in today as well. My name is Gray. I am the pastor of Ascension Church in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm Eric. I pastor Grace Central Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Eric, today I wanted to have a conversation that I admittedly have no idea where it's going to go. I have a few thoughts jotted down, but it is a huge topic and not one that I feel confident that we can totally cover. But I really want to tackle this idea of the once saved, always saved debate in Christian circles. I actually have gotten a couple of questions about this recently. Like, what does that mean? Is that in the Bible? That phrase? No, that's not in the Bible, but they're trying to capture something that is in the scriptures about security of salvation and also about the challenge of apostasy or it's falling away. And I find that a lot of people come to me with this question doctrinally. So in other words, you might have somebody kind of raising their hand in the back of the room, the theology nerd wanting to know, like, where are the definitions of this? If you're in the same tradition that Eric and I find ourselves in, then you might have heard the phrase perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints that God's people will be preserved until the end. Eternal security, people use that language to describe it too. Yes. Exactly. So I find that it comes in the cloak of a doctrinal question. Really what's beneath it is a lot of just an insecurity about how much can I trust that I'm a Christian versus, you know, how much should I be afraid or be warned by the scriptures while I do want to talk a little bit doctrinally today, Eric, I really want us to speak to the person who is uh, maybe just wondering how secure they can feel in these questions. Is this a topic of a debate that comes up in your ministry? Oh, of course. From all different directions, too. I feel like there are people who have questions about assurance and that are really wrestling with that. There are people who will very boldly assert a sort of once saved, always saved idea maybe in times when they shouldn't be (laughs) quite so confident of their salvation. There is a lot of struggle. I really do think this is one of those issues that particularly is problematic because people are trained to think about it or want to think about it. I mean, you say theologic. I would just say, for whatever reason, people want to have this discussion in a kind of abstract way when really it's a deeply existential question. And you need to understand the place existentially that somebody's at before I think you can really help navigate it well. If I can just, even though this is maybe a hard analogy, one of my concerns sometimes for Christians, especially for younger Christians, I mean, maybe especially for young men Christians, is that they don't understand that theological questions are meant to always be connected to life and how we're living. And as a consequence of that, they don't always give very good answers. And the analogy I often use with people that are in that place is just to say, look, if somebody comes to you and asks you the very hard theological question of if somebody commits suicide, can they go to heaven? That is a a question. And I'm like, if you answer that question for them, And you can't tell me after the conversation whether they were asking because a loved one that they know committed suicide or whether they're asking because they're thinking about committing suicide. You fundamentally failed (laughs) at serving and ministering to that person. Because while theologically the answer is yes, God's grace covers all sins and people can absolutely commit suicide and still be in heaven and there's depression and all kinds of things in play for people in those places. Well, that's the theological answer. You have to be thinking about the person and why they're asking and where their life is at, because you could do a lot of damage to somebody if you're not engaging on that practical level. 
That's right. And I think sometimes just to add on to that, there's a kind of certainty that we seek in answers that we can understand. And that that kind of gives us that security, but it kind of ends the question there. I mean, I'm finishing up preaching on the book of Ecclesiastes. And if there's anything that the book emphasizes, it's that we don't know the way of God. So there is some understandable whiplash, I think, from reading the scriptures and saying like, it talks about security and it talks about challenge and warning. The whiplash is part of the answer, which is that we live lives on this earth, not knowing fully what God is doing in the world. That doesn't mean that we can't anchor ourselves in his promises. It doesn't mean that we can't have some certainty, but it does mean that we should be leery of saying, here's the quick answer to that. And now I can go on with my life. The question of salvation is a very personal and very, very much one that the scripture addresses, but it addresses in a way that tells us that our human experience is going to be, it's going to be messy. And we're supposed to keep asking the question in a sense. We're supposed to listen to the warning passages, you know, as if they are warning us. And so that will mean some amount of whiplash. I mean, what do you think about that way of thinking about it, though, Eric? No, I agree. And I also think what you're trying to do, it sounds like I set up some first principles. And maybe the first first principle that you want us to have in this discussion is what people call the creator-creature distinction, which is to say that Scripture reveals things to us about God, right? It's not just that humans are kind of reasoning and trying to figure stuff out, but we can know things about God because he reveals himself to us in his word, but that that is always limited only to what he's revealed about himself and that there are times where something might be sort of above the line is what I think of, right? It's within God's self. And I know in some sense that it's there, but I can't see the specifics of it. And what I can see is the specifics of what's going on in the world. And so I'm called to operate out of what I can see in the world, trusting because of what I know about what's above the line, but not thinking that I can live above that line or see the world the way God does. Yeah, I suspect we're going to go even deeper into that later. But maybe I think the first thing we should do is just set up the tension a little bit. Some people might not even know what we're talking about. I think many will, but... Before you do that, can I actually add a second... Sure. First principle thing that I think is important. We also need to talk about what we mean by salvation. Because when people say once saved, always saved, I think some people that grew up in those traditions have a very stunted view of salvation. And so salvation includes justification. It includes what makes me right with God and what pays for my sins and how I can go to heaven when I die. But salvation in scripture also includes sanctification. It includes growing to be more like Jesus and following after him. And I think we also even need to probe like when people ask questions about salvation and eternal security, what they mean there. Because if you're saying can people be saved in the justification sense without being saved in the sanctification sense, which is what I think some people actually mean when they ask that question. That's also a very different thing from what we're talking about in other cases with like security and perseverance of the saints, right? Because biblically, salvation is a holistic thing that involves people becoming followers of Jesus and disciples and living for and pursuing him in their life. Yes, and some people mean only final salvation too, right? Which is to say that those who are in heaven are not or not in heaven, you know, at the end, which again is related to all that you're saying, but also right. a, a separate thing in people's minds. To add to that confusion even more, you know, I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but the salvation in the Bible is used in different tenses. So, in other words, it's those who have been saved, you know, Paul says. Those who are being saved, Paul also says, 
and those who will be saved. There is a past, a present, and a future to our salvation, which makes evangelicals nervous, right? Does that mean that, that you could be saved and then not saved? And, you know, all these questions that we're talking about. But Paul, for instance, was much more willing to talk about salvation, not so much as a final concept, but also as something that is happening in the life of the believer and already has happened, secured in Christ. I agree. As a matter of first principle, what are we talking about here? And I think the answer to that is, different people are talking about different things, and so we should kind of do a smattering approach. That's right. But that's why we need to name that, too, because I think that that can get messy if we don't acknowledge that complexity. With that said, Gray, why don't you set up the tension for us, the basic tension that exists in Scripture? Yeah, well, why don't I talk about the warning side, and then I'll take it over to you to talk about passages that talk about security. And I really think that we should divide it in that way. There are passages in Scripture that warn us about following God and about staying with God and staying with his people. And then there are passages that emphasize that God holds us and has us. So on the warning side, you know, the first place that my mind goes to is the parable that Jesus told about the soils or some as popularly known as the parable of the sower that sows the seeds and some of it falls on rocky ground, some of it falls on thorns, some of it on into the good soil. And, you know, there seems to be an implication there that the seed that is sown, that is the gospel, is given and and also sometimes it takes a slight root and grows up, but then it withers because of the sun. Sometimes it falls on hardened soil. And so is it possible to have a life of faith, people wonder, where you start to have a life of faith and then you lose it because of the way that Jesus told that story? I also think about, you know, places like Philippians. Before you leave the parables, I will just also mention several other parables connected to that too. The one that I always think about is the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? Where you have these people before the throne of judgment as Christ sits in judgment in the world. And all of those people think that they're believers. The goats, the ones who are cast out from God's presence, all say, Lord, Lord, didn't we serve you? Didn't we do all these things? Didn't we follow you? And so it's meant to be a parable that kind of shakes up and warns and in a sense makes people feel even insecure, even though we're going to talk about security in a minute, in inappropriate ways of them feeling secure because it's saying like people who are going to feel real secure in their salvation, who are going to be cast out of the presence of God. I'm guessing our listeners like me are like tensing up, you know, inside. It's like, that's what the narrative is designed to do. And I think about other passages that emphasize kind of our participation side of it, which is like Philippians 2, which says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. A passage that has people scratching their heads. How do I work out my salvation? I thought salvation was a gift. Do I have to do something for this? It feels like, ah, uh, maybe I don't have this salvation yet that I thought that I did when I prayed a prayer or whatever it might be. Then, Eric, there is just a series of passages in the book of Hebrews that give warnings to the covenant community of people who are in what we might call the visible church. And so maybe I should bring up a distinction there between the visible church and the invisible church. We believe that the church is made up of visible members and invisible members. That is not ones that are see-through and ones that are that you can see, but rather the ones that God has his hand on. So the invisible church is all the saints, past, present, and future, who God has called to himself, his elect. And the visible church, though, are those who are part of a church community that have made themselves, you know, part of that community in a visible way. In the book of Hebrews, there's a series of warnings to people about making sure that you don't fall away. He speaks to the church in 1026, Hebrews 1026. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. 
you know, it seems to say here, you can sin your way out of it. So be careful that you don't fall away. And this is just one of the many challenging passages in Hebrews. There's four or five of them that talk about this tension. That's right, Gray. And there are other places in scripture that you could point to as well for that. But the flip side of that is that you do have these sweeping statements in scripture that are meant to communicate security to people who follow Jesus. Uh, Philippians 1.6 is the one everyone proof texts of he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, which is this clear declaration that God has started working in you. He's going to continue working to you until the day that Jesus returns. Romans 8, especially the end of it, has a bunch of sweeping things, both in kind of the chain of salvation, where it talks about God foreknowing and predestining and justifying and glorifying us ultimately. Also in these declarations that neither death nor life nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. You, you know, you have these things that are meant to communicate to us this security and rest that we have. And the Gospel of John, which has a number of statements about both the fact that God chooses and calls people according to his pleasure, but also the fact that because of that, he keeps people according to his pleasure and holds them secure. So for example, in John 10, Jesus says, I gave them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so that's just a clear declaration of like, I'm holding these sheep that the Father has given me and nothing, no one can take them away from me. So beautiful. I know that you've preached on Romans 8 before, you know, Eric, and you've preached on the golden chain and you've told people that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then somebody in the back is reading these warning passages from Hebrews they're just having a hard time with this. I want us to not solve this tension because, as as I said before, I think part of the answer is, is that we don't solve it. Let's not, let's not think about this in the abstract, Eric. Let's think about what will you say to somebody who's wrestling with this issue. Like they come into our office burdened by the warnings, feeling secure some days and feeling insecure other days. Where do you start with uh, with shepherding them? Yeah, so what I would say and what I usually say is some version of this as a simple summary, pastorally, of how to apply those two truths, which is that our salvation in Jesus Christ is something we can rest in, but not something we should presume upon. So something we can rest in, but not something we can presume upon. And by which I mean this, I mean that passages about security are meant to give rest to our souls when they're troubled, when they're anxious, and when they're insecure. And so when we're being afflicted by those things, we can simply say, I am secure in Jesus. But there's a sort of presumption that at times can creep even into my heart, especially in the face of sin. This is like, well, since my sins are covered with Jesus, then I can kind of get away with this, or I can keep on sinning. And that's where, for example, you know, the author of Hebrews wants to come in and say, if we keep on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, right? That's meant to speak to the sort of presumptuousness that would lead us to boldness and sin, or that would lead us to spiritual apathy and decay. Our salvation is not the sort of salvation in Christ that is meant to produce those fruits in us or that can if we understand it rightly. Yeah, and I do want to note that we didn't mention it, but the book of James also talks about this, uh, about the one who continues on sinning. Every time the Bible talks about sin like that, it's always in the present, active, continuous you know, sense of the word. The book of Hebrews and the book of James would say, sometimes it's translated the soul who sins or the one who sins, but really a more accurate way would be to say, the one who continues in sin, uh, rather than someone who falls off the bandwagon. The scriptures are very clear about people who 
uh, who have sinned and then are repentant of their sins, this is talking about something else. When those warning passages come in, don't read because you have committed a sin. Read it as, I'm sinning and I don't care anymore. That's really what it's getting at. There's a huge difference that's so easily missed by Christians between struggling with sin and not struggling with sin. And I think that people tend to fuse those things in really unhelpful ways. The Bible is endlessly compassionate to us as we struggle with sin. And of course, by struggling, I mean that there might be moments where we don't struggle and we choose we choose sinful things. I mean, we all wrestle with sin and continue to in the life of the believer. But man, there are times that people are like, I'm really struggling with this sin. And the question I want to ask is, but are you? <laughs> because mm-hmm. because it doesn't seem like they're struggling at all, right? They're just like, no, I'm just doing this thing because I want to do it and I don't feel like doing what God commands. And it's that latter category where I think scripture does actually take much sharper a tone of warning rather than a tone of comfort. I think we really need to slow down here, Eric, because that's really, really good. Because when we talk about warnings and being you know, uh, fearful and working out with salvation and fear and trembling and stuff, we're not really talking about a weakness, which the scriptures yeah. over and over again tell us we can have weaknesses and still be joyfully in the kingdom of God. In fact, they're necessary to be reminded of how weak we are so that we know that how great a salvation that we have. Many passages of scripture come to my mind for the weak Christian, the smoldering flax God will not put out, the bent reed he will not break. This is God's heart towards the sinner that is weak is one of compassion. So if you were on the edge and yet you're trying not to be, then that's just weakness. And and God has every compassion for weakness. If you have faith, but but you feel the lack of faith, you feel like a small amount of faith, again, scripture comforts. Faith of a mustard seed, it's the tiniest seed, but when it's planted, it becomes the greatest tree. You don't need a lot of faith to be a Christian. You need faith as a mustard seed. I think there's a distinction between saying, I'm trying, I'm coasting, I don't really care anymore. And then the person that's just saying, I have so far to go, I can't even begin to start. If you're in that category of, I have so far to go, then rest assured that God is able to bring you along and does not have his arms crossed, you know, looking at you. He is just like we are with our children, naturally drawn to weakness. I love my children so much when, you know, I have an eight week old at home. He can't do anything, you know, and yet I'm so drawn to him. He can't do anything for me. He only, in a sense, in a human sense, takes away from me. Why do I love him? It's my tenderness towards him is in his weakness. If I can come at that from another angle, what I think is also sometimes helpful if you're in that place where you're wrestling with discouragement or fear over your own spiritual weakness, oftentimes that can actually reflect a way that we failed to fully internalize the free grace of God. And we failed to really apply that to our hearts because oftentimes what we're actually laboring out of is that somewhere in our spirits, we still feel this bondage to works of the law. We still think that there's some level we have to reach. There's some amount of performance we have to do in order for God to save us. And there's this sort of like, look at me, I'm great. I'm a Pharisee way of doing that. That's obvi- That's more obvious. But man, there's a way for me in my moments of deepest discouragement where I realize I'm still operating out of that mindset. I'm still saying like, man, because I am not doing enough, because I am weak, because I'm struggling here, I'm not doing enough. And that's actually, in my mind, one of the real hearts of Scripture's proclamation that you were secure in Jesus 
is the in Jesus part of it that's meant to be communicated, right? That Jesus isn't going to lose a sheep out of his hand, not because the sheep stay in his hand, but because his hand is strong and, and is holding them. Jesus loves us and keeps us purely because of his grace and his choice to love us and keep us. And that is not changed by our works. And we all know that theoretically, but that's a lot of like, when you really believe that, that gives this deep security to the struggling sinner because you're able to say, man, like, it's okay that I'm not where I, I should be, that I'm not where I feel like I should be because I'm not saved by works. I'm not saved by reaching some level of performance. I'm saved by God's grace alone. Yeah, that's really good. And it also makes me want to say, to return back to this creator-creature distinction for a moment, and say big picture too, the scriptures tell us enough about God's perspective to give us comfort. And they tell us enough yeah. about our participation to give us challenge. <laughs> in other words, the fact that God holds the sheep in the hand, the fact that those who are justified will, you know, who are sanctified will be justified, will be glorified, that there is a golden chain of salvation does not automatically imply that you know who's in that golden chain, right? It is meant to comfort you. But it's not meant for you to say, now I know what God's doing. And certainly not because I prayed a prayer or something like that, that I have controlled what God has done from the beginning of time or something like that. No, but it's teaching us where our trust has to lie. Whatever else we say, our hope and our trust has to rest in Jesus and what he's done for us. And we can't let it start to slip into us being good enough or performing at a certain level. Another thing I'm just now thinking of, Eric, is... The importance of remaining or staying or abiding. And so uh, when the scriptures talk about walking away or leaving the faith, they often use this imagery of those who were with us are no longer with us anymore. When I was a youth pastor, I used to do this all the time, which is to tell the kids, it doesn't matter what struggles you have, you're going to have them. I mean, it does matter. It matters what struggles, it matters the doubts you have. But in a sense, whatever doubts you have, whatever struggles you have, I'm just asking you to do this, stay. Stay in the church, stay connected to the body of Christ, because there's another sense in which as long as we keep showing up, God always, God always has grace for us. The person who is worried about apostasy that just keeps coming back to your office worried about apostasy is demonstrating that they're remaining with God, even though they're in struggle. And that is a good thing. And frankly, anyone who wrestles with deep anxiety and frets over the possibility of them leaving the faith is the sort of person that I think scripture would just say to you, you're not the person who needs to worry about that. You are the person who needs to grow in your sense of security in Jesus and trust in him, but you're not the kind of person who needs to worry that you're secretly not a Christian. That's right. All of that being said, let me now name the hard case. The reason I've always felt like people who dislike apostasy passages in scripture, not dislike, we're all supposed to dislike them, but the reason that I've always struggled with people that try to just explain them all away is that I have had this experience. I have, as a pastor, and actually even before I was a pastor, sat with people who are living in deep, unrepentant, evil sin. I have sat with people who sexually abused other people, right? Or who had serial affairs with their spouse. And they don't feel bad about it. Not really, right? They kind of cry some crocodile tears about getting crap, but they don't feel any real remorse about it. They're not really interested in doing the things to change. You know, it's that the classic like, oh yeah, I want to stop having affairs. And it's like, great. Well, then your wife needs full access to your cell phone and you need to turn on location services. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, you're like, you're not actually. In anyway, mm -hmm. I have sat with those people and seen them reason from 
from their supposed security in Christ to excusing the evils that they're doing. You know, where I'll try to warn them and say, this is evil. This is, you know, not the way a Christian behaves. And they're like, how dare you, right? I'm a Christian, you know, I belong to Jesus. And so therefore, how dare you warn me that I need to change my ways and repent and turn from the destructive ways that I'm living. And I have sat with people in that place who are using their faith in Christ and their supposed security in Christ as a justification to go on sinning. And those people do need uh, in a real fearful way to be confronted with the reality of apostasy and the reality that they probably aren't in Christ, or at least they don't have any reason to take that security for themselves. That's so well said. They're there for a reason. Why else would the scriptures warn us if the warning wasn't real. Yeah. Our theologizing can never lead us to the point where we're trying to say things that scripture actively doesn't say. It says that we need to not go on sinning or we can, we're in danger of walking away from the truth. And I think, okay, that's a question theologically or whatever. You don't need to go there in the mind of God. You need to go here in the mind of a person. From my perspective, of course, I have known people that have had faith, seemingly beautiful faith, seemingly connected to the church, and then something happens, something comes up, and it's just like the parable of the sower. It's something cultural happens. Someone, they hear about abuse in the church or something like that, or they hear about other hard things, and it's just an easy thing for them to walk away then suddenly the parable of the sower makes sense, right? It's just like, that's exactly what it was talking about. There was no sense of struggle in the faith, even though their faith seemed genuine. And it's not really our calling to get to the bottom of whether they were in God's hand or not in their in his hand. We believe that they weren't, you know, at least at this moment, but maybe they will be later. That's not our calling. Our calling is to say, am I responding to the warning? And am I, as a pastor, am I warning people in that same vein? We should probably clarify at this point, one of the tricky things about especially some of the apostasy passages in Hebrews is that they do seem to present this like there's no going back from that. And and that's what I'd want to clarify. I do think that there is also, from a human perspective, there is both wandering and true rebellion and rejection. And you often can't tell what's going on for a person in a given moment. There are people who go through significant seasons of wandering and unrepentant sin. In the Bible, a good example of that is David, who within the context of, of committing adultery and committing murder goes for probably like a year of his life in very much unrepentant sin until he's confronted by the grievousness of what he's done. We don't actually know how long it is, but just enough stuff happens in that story that it doesn't seem like it's the next day. And then he is broken and returns to faith. There are other stories where you see people seem to wander for long periods and then be restored. You don't know whether some other person who's outside the faith, when they wander away, you don't know whether that person has that story or whether they have the continuing sinning and obstinate rebellion, never going to return kind of story, right? You shouldn't see someone who's wandering. Because I do think there are people that see, say, their kids grew up in the church and are wandering away and really struggle with that sort of fearfulness. And there's no reason to think that that's their story. But there is with our stories a way where even that wandering shouldn't be presumed upon. And we should not say, well, I don't really feel like following Jesus right now, but I guess I can come back to it someday and then I'll be fine. And that's also is part of what's trying to be warned against in some of those passages, I think. Yeah, really not our place to draw the lines. The only exception to that is in the sense of the church keys to the kingdom sense of there is a place for the elders of the church, I think, to draw some lines and say, this person has continued in unrepentant sin. 
you know, for X number of times we've sought them out. The goal has always been restoration, but we have to remove them from the church. And that has to mean something that that discipline is true. So that would be the only sense. But even in that. That is a real category. Let me name that though, actually. This is not in terms of peering into God's perspective, but there are certain situations where it actually matters for us to say that I don't judge people's hearts, but there is a judgment that's given to the church to say that something is sinful and you ought not think that you're a Christian unless you are willing to repent of that sin. And that unless you are willing to repent is actually an important thing. And so to use an example I alluded to earlier, dealing with somebody who sexually abused somebody else, the church should discipline that person. And the sort of repentance that would give me reason to hope that that person had returned to faith would mean that that person is in prison. Like, you know, the, the sort of works of repentance that you would expect to have from the outside and as the church recognizing that person is repentant is going to mean openly admitting to the grievous evils that they've done. And while again, I don't pass judgment on people's souls, right? And that's not the position that I'm taking from the human perspective. I have no reason to think that that person is repentant and belongs to Jesus unless they've engaged in the kind of repentance that really is costly. And so I do think there is a place with certain people to say, yeah, like you can state that because I, especially in our moment of reckoning about things like abuse, I think that's one of the places that churches have gotten in trouble is that someone who's like molested children comes to the church and says like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. And Jesus has saved me. And they're like, oh, welcome back into fellowship. And they haven't processed the like, are you demonstrating the sort of works of repentance that would be in keeping with someone who's really repenting of molesting children? Yeah. What comes to mind is the easy abuse of that, which is presenting obstacles to people that are not scriptural necessarily. So in other words, once you have not looked at computer pornography for six months, then, then you're okay again. There's kind of wisdom in judgment. There's kind of a jurisprudence of the, of the session of the elders. And there's also though clear things. What you're saying is a clear thing. Like if you can't, I wouldn't say necessarily be in prison, but I would say if you can't admit to the authorities and then the the case that I'm thinking of was a case of criminal sexual assault, but we don't control the court systems. We don't control how long they're in prison. We say, you need to admit this, right? Yes. That's kind of the line of, of repentance, right? Is admit it to the court. But I do think that it could get tricky with that, right? It could be like, how much can we tell people they need to do before they've truly repented and come back? Like that's, that's a hard thing. Again, we're talking now about kind of extreme cases, right? Somebody that has struggled in pretty ordinary ways and comes back to the church and is just like, I'm sorry, you know, you just welcome them back in, right? Regardless of the lifestyle they've lived. And there are certainly churches that would do the like, oh, well, you need to not do this or that legalistic thing or whatever to demonstrate repentance. All of that's really problematic. But at the same time, I have definitely seen situations where people are restored to fellowship and they're not willing to do pretty basic outward things that would demonstrate repentance. And that is concerning to me biblically, right? Because the reason apostasy passages exist, maybe we should just name this. I don't know that we've talked about this theologically. The reason that can be a true and useful thing is because while people who are really Christians ought to feel a deep assurance and security in their faith, like we said, people who aren't Christians, it's actually spiritually destructive to give them a false assurance in a salvation that they don't actually have. And so we return again to the main thing, which is, who is this person? Who are you struggling with this? Right. Well, and who are you, listener? And how are you asking this too? I Not just for me as a pastor, but I just ask you, if you're listening to this conversation, just look at your heart and say, am I trying to get away with sinning and continuing sinning? If so, I need to wrestle with the warnings. If not, rest in Jesus 
Alleluia. And even if you are trying to get away with sinning, return to Jesus, repent, and receive his free grace. That's right. And I love that we're landing the plane here. I just want to land it this way as well to say it's okay to experience some of the scriptural whiplash. Be comforted when you read the comforting passages. (laughs) Be challenged when you read the challenging passages which means you're walking in faith. It's not a set it and forget it. That's what I don't like about the phrase, once saved, always saved. It's got the confusion on which salvation are we talking about here. But also, it's just got this finality to it that we want as human beings, but is not what the scripture encourages us. It encourages us to walk with God. If the engine is running, if you are weak, but the engine is turning over, it's there, you have faith, then know that God is sympathetic and compassionate towards your weakness. If you don't care about him at all and you're walking away, then know that he judges sin and that he is not to be trifled with. And the scriptures teach both of those things, and it's good for us to read, experience, and ask ourselves questions whenever we come to them. And all that, again, put your faith in Jesus and really trust in him. Because the thing that I dislike the most about the way a lot of people use the once saved, always saved language is that by saved and the once saved part, they tend to actually focus on a thing they did in the past. Some prayer they prayed, some experience they had, some altar call that they answered. And that's actually a sneaky way of trusting in your works for salvation, right? The question is, are you hoping right now in Jesus and in his grace and love? And is that the thing that is making you feel secure? And if it is, then rest and continue to walk in obedience to him. But it's not what you've done or what you are doing that is the source of of your security. Yeah, it's the point that the book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, you know, answers, which is, it's really kind of an irrelevant question if you've asked him into your heart. What you really should be asking is, am I trusting in him now? And whenever that happened, wherever that happened, those things can matter for a story or for your own sense of whatever, but it doesn't matter for salvation. What matters is, am I receiving and resting on Jesus alone as he's offered in the gospel? And in as much as you're trusting in him now, he is trustworthy. That's right. That's a good place to stop, Eric. Let's switch to what's good. We love to end our shows talking about things that are good, true, and beautiful in the life of the believer, sometimes related to faith, sometimes not related to faith, but always related to goodness. And Eric's turn is this week, what is good? So I'm going to recommend a cooking method, Gray. I've talked about this sometimes before in the podcast. I like to cook. I like to do fancy cooking. I also do all of the cooking now for our blended family. And this is a very pretentious cooking method that's also, I found, very practically helpful. And that is sous vide cooking. Are you familiar with sous vide? Do you know how this works? I'm picturing bags and water, and that's all I know. So basically, the word sous vide in French actually means in vacuum, but that's actually secondary. Although if you get into it, you would use a vacuum machine like that you can get for storing your food to put the things in the bags, but you can also just use Ziploc bags. But basically, it's water bath cooking. So you have a machine that's pretty reasonably priced. I bought a nice one for like $150, but you can spend like 100 bucks, And then you put it in a big tub of water, basically. And this machine circulates the water and raises it to a certain temperature. And then you put what you're going to cook. Meat is the main thing that you're using sous vide to cook, although you can cook vegetables and potatoes and stuff in it. And what it will do is it will raise it to the temperature of that circulating water and no higher because the water's at that temp. And so, for example, let's say you want a medium rare steak. You put it in a sous vide bath for like 130, 135 for an hour. It will raise the temperature of that steak to exactly that temperature, and it will never get any higher than that, meaning you can't overcook meat. Now, a couple of notes about it. Downside, 
it takes a while. It's not an instant cooking method. It's not a microwave replacement for sure. It takes an hour or two. And with big things, because you can sous vide like turkeys or I did a pork belly for 24 hours. So it takes a few hours to get up to temp, but it's pretty fire and forget. You just drop it in the thing and leave it there. And the flip side is it's very forgiving for overcooking. While eventually the stuff kind of disintegrates, you can like put, say, pork chops in there between one and four hours and they will come out just fine. And so you have a lot of freedom and flexibility with that. Two, meat when it comes out of sous vide looks kind of gross. So you usually brown it at the very end, but that's pretty easy. So one of the things that I've been using it for a lot is pork because pork's really hard to not overcook. And so you put it in a pan for like a minute on each side to brown it afterwards. That's a little extra work. On the other hand, the inside of the meat is incredible because it is perfectly juicy. It loses none of its juices in the process. It's exactly the temperature you want it to be. And while there's some debate about it online, you do have some freedom too if you worry about undercooking meat because... Since it's all vacuum sealed, if you're doing it that way and stuff, and you can get it up to that temp and hold it there for a while, yeah, you have a little more flexibility there. But here's the thing. I have found that it's actually very useful, especially cooking for a big family or when we're entertaining people, to say, like, I can put, like, a dozen pork chops into this water bath, have them in a couple bags, throw some seasoning in, in the fridge, drop them in, go do my thing, come back a couple hours later when when the guests have arrived, even if they're a half hour late, it's no big deal, just throw them on the grill or on the stovetop and brown them quick and then serve them. And so I'm finding it very practically useful and it's just super cool. All right. I have not tried it. My first take sounds (laughs) un-American. Why would we have this when God gave us the grill? That's just, that's just my... You can finish your meat on the grill, but (laughs) really the answer is that they do two different things or often can do a different set of things. And I also have a trigger, so it's not like I don't enjoy grilling. (laughs) But I got this just sort of on a lark because I wanted to try the experiment. And I found a surprising number of recipes, probably once a week or once every one to two weeks, I'm using it to do like good family dinners. And it's actually proving pretty useful. And it's fancy. Like, let's just, you know, own the fact that that it's what like (laughs) sous vide cooking is something that a lot of restaurants actually use to make their meat. All right. So next time in, I'm in Nebraska, you can make something for me and I will come with an open mind. But uh, something about pulling meat out of water still doesn't doesn't ring true in my soul of, of the way that meat should be prepared. But I mean, I think all of those Irish people, you know, that are boiling their beef probably would beg to differ with with that argument. But I guess I guess whatever, whatever you need to feel masculine. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. We're so glad that you have joined us for this conversation. Please share this with a friend if you think it would be helpful to them. Absolutely. Also, if you want to review us online, that's a big help to us. It's one of the ways that people find out about this. You can do that on Apple Podcast or wherever else you get your podcasts. We really appreciate those reviews. Feel free to check us out online. But with that said, friends, I'm Eric. And I'm Gray. And this has been Simply Faithful. <laughs>